only solution for a guy like me is the center of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I say the center of Alcoholics Anonymous, I mean a sponsor, a home group, commitments, working steps, and ultimately cross that invisible bridge to where I'm working with others. I got to have all that going on in my life or I'm not in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm more or less various stages of spectator. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12 step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Hi-oh! That was the voice of Mr. Carl M. from Covina, California that you heard at the beginning of this episode and you will be hearing so much more from him in just a moment. But first things first. This episode is coming at you and brought to you by... William and David and Gerhard. Do you know what William and David and Gerhard did? Well, just in case you were a first-time listener, they went to our website, SoberSpeak.com. They clicked on the little Donate tab at the top of the page, and they made a contribution. Thank you so much, William and David and Gerhard, for your generosity. This episode is coming right out to Ewan's. And did you notice, by the way, it just kind of came to my mind right before I started this uh, little recording, uh, the hi at the beginning of the episode. That is a, I guess, a throwback word to Mr. Ed McMahon from the Johnny Carson show, if you remember him. He used to say hi every time they started out the episode. But nonetheless, I... John M., just another bozo on the bus. We'll be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings, and I'm truly honored and privileged to serve all of you listening in. So take a seat, if you will, around this virtual table. And you can't see it, but I'm doing a little circle with my finger here. Take a seat, if you will, around this virtual table, and let's get started. Remember now, no matter who you are, or what your past looks like, you are welcome here. It is an open table for all, and we are glad you have joined us. I'm going to go right into the ep today because Mr. Carl M. is absolutely fantastic, and I want to get you right to his story. This is Carl M. We're calling this episode The Center of Alcoholics Anonymous, and Carl Carl is with a K, I might add. He's from, as I mentioned on the beginning of this, he's from Covina, California, and they are the, my understanding, the self-proclaimed sobriety 
capital of the world. And uh, Carl talks about that a little bit. Uh, we talk about being in the center of AA, what that means to Carl. We discuss the doctor's opinion at length, and that includes craving an abnormal, excuse me, an abnormal reaction to alcohol, uh, a mental obsession, that strange mental twist we have where alcohol is concerned, and the catch-22 of alcoholism. We discussed the Christmas letter that his parents sent out that describes his relationship with his family. Uh, it's both uh, entertaining uh, and sad at the same time, uh, but you'll understand what I mean when you hear it. We talk about antabuse. We talk about the gong show meeting that is still located in California. We discuss Paco, his fellow patient in rehab, and you got to hear about Paco. Then we talk about Blair on the bridge. And then my favorite, I had never heard the term before, projectile regurgitation. And you you could just uh, use your imagination on what that means, but Carl will explain it uh, in the episode itself. And then we talk about staying sober one day at a time. All right. We're going to hear that and much, much more from Carl. Go ahead and stay tuned, and we will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of the episode. Enjoy, folks. Okay, everybody. So today we are sitting here with Mr. Carl M. in Covina, California. So, Carl, why don't you go ahead, introduce yourself, uh, give your sobriety date if you wish, and then we'll get this thing cranked up. All right. Thanks, John. My name's Carl. I'm an alcoholic, and my sobriety date is January 21st, 1987. 1987. You've been around for a little while. For a while. Yeah, yeah. If you could see me right now, I, I, you know, I got here at 25 years old, and you can definitely, in looking at me now, that was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> and I've heard you say, so you're in Covina. By the way, where is Covina in California? Covina is part of Los Angeles County, and the best way to put it would be uh, I could be in downtown Los Angeles in about 18 minutes or Hollywood in about 22 minutes if there was no traffic. But that means midnight or 1 a.m. During normal <laughs> times, it takes an hour. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So the mileage isn't too far, but it's a lot of traffic. Exactly. And and I have heard you say before something to the effect of Covina is the sobriety capital of the world. Did I hear that right? Yeah, my home group is very humble about that. Uh, (laughs) We we actually have a banner. It's about eight feet by three feet. That goes up on our wall at our local clubhouse, and it says Covina, sobriety capital of the world, has a picture of a globe and an arrow pointing right there to Covina. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and where, what would bring on such a uh, uh, high and mighty title there? Well, throughout the uh, 1970s, 80s, and 90s, there was a huge amount of old timers that sort of retired. Covina was one of the very first sort of places a little bit east on your way towards Palm Desert that a lot of people might have retired to, sort of the first nice suburb. And it just sort of grew from there that a lot of people with a lot of years uh, are here. And 
as a result of that in the 70s, 80s and 90s, and those old timers worked with so many people that we literally have an army, a, a small army of sober people in this little town called Covina. We're only 40. Covina is only 48,000 people. Now, there's a thing called West Covina that has uh, 375,000 people. But Covina proper only has 48,000 people. But we got about 2,500 solid, sober members of the recovery community in Covina. Okay, so let's go ahead and turn a corner then. So let me ask you this. I know you've been around since, you know, like like you said, 1987, uh, had a lot of experience within the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. When you think about what separates guys like me and you in terms of alcoholism and, you know, where, where are we struggling? What separates us from the average temperate drinker, if you will? What comes to mind for you? Well, I just go right out of the book and the doctor's opinion. And, and I love to talk about the, the thing that separates me as an alcoholic from the, the non-alcoholic. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. And, uh, you know, I like to talk about a lot of things. I, I love a lot. I think a lot of things are important. I have passion for a lot of things. I spend a lot of time doing stuff, but there's nothing more important than the fact that I'm an alcoholic. And the reason that I believe I'm an alcoholic is really very simple. I believe I'm an alcoholic because I've got a really strained relationship with alcohol. That's what makes me alcoholic. I can have all sorts of other weird stuff going on, or I can be absolutely normal in other respects, but I got a really weird relationship with alcohol. And this strange relationship that I have with alcohol takes on a few forms. Uh, the first part of this strange relationship that I have with alcohol happens when I drink it. <laughs> a really strange thing happens when I drink booze. And the book calls it, in the doctor's opinion, calls it an abnormal or allergic reaction that happens to me physically when I drink alcohol. Uh, they say that the symptom of this allergic uh, reaction is what they refer to as uh, something called the phenomenon of craving, meaning unexplained. And the best way that I can describe this thing that the book calls the phenomenon of craving in my life is that it seems like whenever I drink booze, the more booze I drink, the thirstier I get. It literally hap that happens with nothing else that I drink. I'm, I'm uh, drinking a cup of coffee right here, right? And I'm sipping on that, and I'll probably finish that sometime the next hour. But you know, once I finish that cup of coffee, I can promise you, I am not going to go buy three pounds of coffee and lock myself in a cheap motel room, right? <laughs> it's not going to happen, right? So that's the first thing that separates me as an alcoholic from the non-alcoholic, my physical reaction to alcohol, the fact that I crave more the more I drink. But I always like to say, if that's all there was to it, then just stop. Nancy Reagan would be an international hero, would have wiped out drug addiction and alcoholism with her little campaign in the early 80s of just say no. If that would have worked, I would have. And I imagine you would have gone, <laughs> slapped ourselves in the forehead and said, goodness, no. Right. What First was I thinking? Trouble. Why didn't, yeah, I, why right, didn't I think exactly. of that? First sign of trouble. We'd all say no and we'd go on and go about our lives. But I've got another really strange part of my relationship with alcohol. And what's really strange about this part is that this happens when I'm not drinking. And this is the part of my relationship to alcohol that used to baffle and just destroy people that loved me, cared about me, or counted on me. See, they could actually, uh, it, it, at, at least, you know, they could fathom the idea, oh, he's been drinking for two days. Yes, that's why he's in the hospital. 
He's been drinking for three days. That's why he's in a blackout. That's why he got arrested, etc. It makes sense. Two plus two equals four. But with this thing that the book calls the mental obsession or the strange mental blank spot that I'm about to talk about, they could not make sense of that. They could not understand why I would come out of a hospital. Maybe I still got the iodine stain on my arm where they were intravenously feeding me. Or I might even have charcoal stains around my mouth from where they had pumped my stomach. And they would watch me take a drink in the next six hours. And people that loved me, cared about me, or counted on me would stand there just baffled. And our book describes this as this is the crux of the problem. Because if we never bought the lie of taking the first drink, if we never had this thing called the mental obsession, which happens when I'm not drinking and talks me into that first drink, if that never happened, the fact that I crave would be a moot point. It just wouldn't matter, right? It would be like if I were allergic to strawberries, if I never uh, ate a strawberry, who would care that I'm allergic? No price to pay. But I have this thing called the mental obsession. And it seemed the best way for me to describe that in my life is that it seems like no matter how much pain and suffering I may have caused for myself and definitely others, whether it was a day ago, a week ago, or a month ago, no matter how much pain and suffering, my mind was always able to rationalize and justify my walk back to the next drink at all costs. <laughs> so therefore, because of these two components of my relationship to alcohol, I am in the ultimate catch-22 called alcoholism. I cannot drink successfully because of my physical response to it, but I cannot on my own not drink successfully because of my mental obsession with it. So I am damned if I do and damned if I don't. It's the, once again, the ultimate catch-22 called alcoholism. And it's, it's those two things that kept me on a hamster wheel for 15 years. And so that's the difference between myself and the temperate drinker. Talk to me a little bit about your family growing up. Uh, did you have brothers and sisters? And what yeah. was that dynamic like? All right. The best way I can tell you about that is to tell you about this old custom that my mother uh, used to do. And she did it till, till about four years till she died. Uh, she just passed away last uh, last August at 93 years old. But a very common custom in our and I don't know whether it was a Scandinavian custom or a Lutheran custom. Right. Because my uh, my my mother was Icelandic. My father was Swedish. And uh the best way I can describe my family is to tell you about this Christmas letter, this custom of writing a Christmas letter. Uh, you know, normal pe a lot. Most people will send out Christmas cards to their friends and relatives. My family actually wrote a big, long Christmas letter. And when I was about 22, I got a hold of one of these letters that had been sent out the previous Christmas. Now, bear in mind, I got sober at 25. And at 22, I got a hold of one of these letters that had been sent out the previous Christmas. And as I read it, it let me know exactly where I stood with my family. Now, the first paragraph of this letter talked about uh, what my parents had been doing that year. Another impressive year, I'm sure. They, they were impressive people with impressive lives. They were very involved in the community. Did a lot of amazing things. That's a long story, though. But the second paragraph talked about what the Morris children had been doing that year. And that paragraph went something like this. Our oldest daughter, Christina, just graduated from Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, with a master's degree in human resources. She's now working for a large pharmaceutical company in the Midwest. She traveled to Europe this summer. She saw this. She saw that. Her hobbies are this, this, and this. 
She's a very happy young woman. We are very proud of her. Our oldest son, Eric, just graduated from Western Washington State University with a degree in marketing. He's now working for a large advertising firm here in downtown Seattle. He loves to golf. He loves to travel. He's engaged to be married to this wonderful woman named Mary Lou, who works for a very small company here in Seattle named Microsoft. <laughs> it was small at one time. Wow. And they love to golf together. They love to travel together. He's a very happy young man. We are very proud of him. Our youngest son, Carl, just turned 22. <laughs> I remember I remember holding that letter up and turning the page over and going, really? That's it, huh? <laughs> you know. You're uh, alive. That, yeah. That, but that was, you know, my parents, uh, they really were sticklers for this thing called the truth. Right. And so if they would have actually told the truth about what would, uh, I, they knew about my life that year, you know, they would have had to put something in that letter. Like we had forbid Carl from even coming back to the neighborhood. Uh, we made a, the big mistake of taking a two week vacation. We came back a couple of days early, found a bunch of cars. We don't recognize out in front of the house. We, we walk inside, there's green smoke all over the house, there's broken bottles, there's scales on the, on the kitchen counter, and we saw Carl half-dressed running out the back door, right? <laughs> so they, they probably didn't want that in their Christmas letter, so they were actually being kind uh, just to say he just turned 22. <laughs> they might have added, we think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But yeah, so I, you I were a non-alcoholic family. So you were the black sheep of the family, it seems Exactly. Like. I had to go two generations away to my great-grandfather from Iceland. His name was Bjarne Jonasson. Uh, my middle name is Jonasson. That's my middle name. Uh, he was an alcoholic and a bigamist. He left one family in Iceland, got on a ship and married another woman, had three more daughters uh, in Canada. Uh, one of those daughters was my grandmother. And... Uh, there's a lot of writings about him that say he was a fine man, a very fine man. But then they'd always add this caveat, but never do business with Bjarne if he's been drinking. <laughs> never, <laughs> never give him any money if he's been drinking. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so you found him. Were you in the, do I remember this right? Were you in the military? Is that correct? Yes, yes, yes. I, uh, when did you join the military? I was 23 years old. It was shortly after that little Christmas letter thing. And things just got really ugly. A drug deal went really, really badly. And I'm a bad, failed drug dealer, even though I did it all the time, because I'm such a drunk. Right? It's hard to be a good, no matter what you're doing. If you're an accountant, you're a bad accountant if you're a drunk. If, you, <laughs> if you're a, a talk show host, you know, it's hard to show up for work. And I'm <laughs> right. a drug dealer. I'm a pot dealer, right? <laughs> I, I, I'm horrible. So it really went ugly. I mean, it just spiraled out of control. I owed a lot of money to the wrong people. And I joined the Navy. And uh, this should concern anybody uh, that cares about the security of the United States. <laughs> right. But on my way into the Navy, uh, I passed a potential test. It's called the ASVAP test. And uh, this test will measure uh, your capabilities if you show up in the same place each day. Uh, it's a potential test, really. Potential, I always look at right? <laughs> and this test that I took uh, with the Navy qualified me to become a nuclear engineer. Mm. Um, right? Uh, you know, it's, uh, that should concern anybody. 
right uh, that you know <laughs> that the navy would have any type of system in place that would even maybe possibly or even remotely allow somebody like me near anything nuclear that's right uh, however they have another safeguard they made me take another test when i showed up at that base for boot camp and i couldn't pass that test uh, that's called a urinalysis test is what it's called <laughs> <laughs> right so i i lost the nuclear two year nuclear school and uh, i was just given a an electrician's a school and they sent me out to the fleet as an electrician and i was out on a, a spruance class destroyer uh, hunting Russian Russian submarines in the in the mid 1980s, which is kind of the the peak of that sort of standoff between us and the Soviet Union, where we had a 200 mile uh, treaty where our submarines or their submarines could not come within 200 miles of the coastline of either country. So we were guarding that. Like you said, it, it was to get away from the drug dealers, and right. Uh, and so did that. Did it work? I mean, did they straighten you up? How that ultimately? Go? Yes, yes, because. Uh, Strangely enough, because the United States Navy is a huge drinking institution, right? They, right? Excessive drinking is part of the deal. But my alcoholism was so far gone. Uh, and I was I literally, you know, I would do well when that ship was out at sea. I really would. I would not drink. I wouldn't do any drugs. I'm, I'm out at sea. And I was actually experiencing a lot of things that a, a young man is supposed to experience in, in maturing into a man. I started to recognize the the training I was getting, the discipline, the camaraderie of the other men. And, and what we were doing were actually, was actually making a difference. I, I had all those feelings, but, but I'm alcoholic. And alcoholism would laugh at a young man that thinks he's going to get his life together, right? I mean, literally the way I kind of like to picture it is alcoholism would laugh at me and say, you think you're going to avoid me? I can take the love a mother has for her children. You don't think I can take this away from you? And indeed, you know, uh, um, the ship would pull into a port. I'd take a drink. And now, the, remember, at the beginning, I, des I described that craving that I have. And I would go on three and four day drunks. Didn't matter if I only had two days of liberty. I'm on a three or four day drunk. It's a very strange feeling coming back, uh, finding myself uh, coming out of a blackout at 6 a.m. in the morning in a foreign country, standing on a large pier, looking up and down that pier going, <clears throat> Uh, there was a destroyer here the other day, <laughs> right? Uh, military superiors uh, frown on that behavior. It's called mm -hmm. missing ships movement. It is a huge deal because now they have to find an alternative way to get you to where the ship now is, or they have to get you back to your home base. And there's a lot of administrative, ugly paperwork that goes along with this and charges. And, you know, and so I was getting in a lot of trouble. Uh, ultimately, they put me on anabuse. Um, and abuse is medical science's best shot at the alcoholic, right? Uh, it's this little pill that looks harmless. My God, it, it just looks like a little, the aspirin pill for God's sake. And so what caused that? What were the, I guess, circumstances leading up to them that said, okay, we think that Carl needs to be on and abuse. Was it a succession of events yeah. or uh, Missing ships movements, and then uh, I uh, also got in two wrecks uh, on the base. And then uh, the second wreck was uh, so ugly. I, I lost control of my car right outside the Navy base and took it sideways right through the front guard shack oh, no. uh, where a Marine stands duty. And in my mind's eye, I can still see this Marine doing this big dive out of the – I mean, he literally dove out of the guard shack. My car slid sideways right through that guard shack. He, and Marine did a quick somersault. He was back up, weapon drawn. Thank God these guys are in good shape. 
I mean, I'm just really happy that Marines are in really good shape because he did a little acrobatic move to save his own butt. And it was one of those mornings. God, I hated these types of mornings. There's sirens going off. People are running in every direction. Uh, people are yelling, screaming, and uh, they're all pointing at me like this is all my fault. Um, you know, and I'm standing there confused. Not. It took me about probably 45 seconds to two minutes to realize, you know, because I'm in a drunken stupor. And I'm, you know, standing there confused like everybody else. What just happened? <laughs> they all, they're all pointing at me. And of course, uh, uh, they, I was pat, I was taken to the hospital, uh, but already handcuffed and I'm handcuffed to the bed. Uh, they're reading new charges on me and this is nothing significant. That's uh, like I said, that's just what happens in the guy's life. Like mine about every 90 days, if you're living the way I'm living. Uh, but the most significant thing that happened that morning is that, that's when the decision was made that I'm put on antabuse and now I'm restricted to the ship. I'm on antabuse and I'm on, uh, initially a two week, uh, uh, two week restriction, loss of rank. You know, I'd done that before. And when, and when they put you on antabuse, do you, uh, um, do you, uh, take it yourself? H- how does all that oh. work? Oh yeah. Yeah. They'd run across guys like me before. Uh, so no, I'm now under orders to show up at sick bay every single morning. Sick bay means the ship's hospital or medical clinic. And I have to sit there with a couple other guys and we have to sit in a chair and we have to stick our tongue out like, and that hospital corpsman, uh, uh, would put that little white pill on each of our tongues and then they would make us sit there for a half an hour. So there's no way to spit it out. There's no way to put it under your tongue because within a half an hour it dissolves anyway. Right. And they watch us for a half hour. So, uh, (laughs) The antibuse actually gets in your system. And what antibuse does is it stops your body from uh, being able to break down the alcohol. It stops your liver from breaking uh, alcohol down into the sugars and the alcohol, the way it's supposed to be broken down properly so the body can then absorb it. So literally what it does, it stops it from breaking down. So it actually enters your body kind of like rubbing alcohol would. And so you get violent, you get really, really sick and they actually warn you, you might die. And so that's supposed to stop you from drinking. But supposed so the to. Al- supposed <laughs> to, right? Uh, but I, uh, I snapped. See, what happens to me when you take me away from, take alcohol away from me and you do not give me a solution, which I have found it, the only solution for a guy like me is the center of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I say the center of Alcoholics Anonymous, I mean a sponsor, a home group, commitments, working steps, and ultimately cross that invisible bridge to where I'm working with others. I got to have all that going on in my life or I'm not in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm more or less various stages of spectator if I don't have those things going on in my life. And I have to have either that or alcohol, one or the other. And so the idea of an abuse, putting something to block me from drinking and not giving me a solution uh, actually puts me in a very deadly position because I drank on top of an abuse. I uh, went AWOL from my ship. I locked myself in a little hotel room in downtown San Diego, Plaza Hotel. It's on 4th and Broadway. It's actually still there. They uh, remodeled a little while ago. Uh, back in 1986, when I used to be a regular uh, resident of the Plaza Hotel, it was $13 a night. Uh, they've upgraded it. It's now $19 a night. Fine establishment. Oh you should check goodness. the Yelp reviews on that. I actually, <laughs> I think they've actually done an even better job lately and, and are now using it to, as government subsidized, uh, housing for the homeless. Uh, but anyway, 
uh, I locked myself in that little hotel room with a with a fifth of vodka and a shot glass. And I remember uh, that fifth of vodka, that bottle of vodka and the shot glass sitting on this little rickety little end table. As I sat on the edge of the bed and I stared at that bottle of vodka, I remembered that the Navy doctors had given me that very stern warning that if I drink on top of antabuse, there'll be one of two reactions. One reaction is you'll get violently ill. The other reaction is you might die. I remember staring at that bottle. And I thought, <clears throat> well, I wonder which reaction I'm going to get. Mm. Uh, so you see, and the reason I got there is because the restlessness, irritability and discontentment that happens to me when you take alcohol away from me is indescribable. I love the way that the book says restless, irritable, and discontent as a sort of a generic sort of bottom line low point. I literally go insane. I become so angry and frustrated I can barely breathe. I, uh, I, uh, I, I, I get this overwhelming feeling of you don't know who I am. If you knew who I was, you wouldn't treat me this way. But, you know, people would look at me and go, treat you what way? What do you mean, Carl? We actually are quite tolerant of you. Uh, <laughs> we give you every break in the book. You know, you have all sorts of privilege going on here and you are losing your mind. And I, I and I never felt anybody understood me. And so I can't last on this interview. And so in that hotel room, I, I took one shot. And nothing happened. Authority had lied to me again, as far as I was concerned. I waited about two minutes just to make sure. And I took another shot. All of a sudden, I felt tingly in the face. So I looked in this cracked little mirror that's in this hotel room. And I was bright red, blotchy and purple in places. Hmm. Not so bad. Took another shot. All of a sudden, I could feel my heart, you know, pounding out of my chest. Boom, boom, boom. I looked at my shirt. I was drenched in sweat. And all of a sudden, I was like, <gasps> hyperventilating. <gasps> We're doing all right so far. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I gotta tell John, you're pretty sick if you think this is funny. I mean, it's only us, right? I mean, my mother heard me speak before, you know, a few times. And she only went a couple of times. She didn't want to hear it too much. She wasn't laughing when I got to this point. You know, the whole crowd is laugh, laugh. <laughs> Look at the kids dying in a motel room. <laughs> She's like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> right? And so it says something about you, John, that you, you find this funny. But I found the magic of drinking on top of antibus. Uh See, you got to hang in there, right? Because the next thing that happened to me is I took another shot and up it came. And I literally had this thing that my second sponsor, a man named Eddie Cochran, who uh, passed away in 1999. His sobriety date was December 2nd, 1951. He was one mm. of the pioneers of Southern California Alcoholics Anonymous. He was one of the patriarch symbols of Covina when I arrived in Covina, when I had two years of sobriety. He used to call what happened to me next projectile regurgitation. Uh, <laughs> this is a new level of puking I'm unfamiliar with, right? Uh, and projectile I, regurgitation. Projectile regurgitation. Literally, it just would come up and sort of this kind of Linda Blair spray across the room. <laughs> Gosh. Now, thank God the Plaza Hotel is the type of hotel room where the toilet is in the same room with the bed. That came in handy there. I think it's a design feature, I believe, maybe to make convicts feel more at home upon release. I'm not really sure. <laughs> right. But I found the magic of drinking on top of antibuse, and that is if you hang in there. And that's a very important feature of drinking on top of antibuse, and that is 
because uh, you can't half measure it, right? You can't be a right. weenie and say, oh, oh my God, my face is turning red. I got to stop. You got to hang in there. You got to push through this. And I found that if I kept drinking and I kept puking and I kept drinking and I kept puking about an hour to an hour and a half, enough of the antibiotics would kick out of my system and I quit throwing up and I would just be left with red face, hyperventilating, sweating, and I'm all right with that. So ultimately, <laughs> if you're going to drink on top of antibiotics, you might, might need to get ready to really reach down deep inside yourself for a level of commitment you might not even know you have. <laughs> so I drank on top of Anvis the last seven months, and then I was in handcuffs one more time and, and delivered into a, a military treatment center. And All right, let me, take, let me take right a little there. break here. We'll be continuing our conversation with Carl M. in just a moment. Just a reminder, you were listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the World Wide Web at SoberSpeak.com. Uh, you can also find the donate button on our website. You can use if and only if the spirit moves you to do such. Please keep in mind this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. Sober Speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right. Now back to Mr. Carl M. All right. So you are, you're in your last seven months of abuse. Take me yeah. from there. Yeah. I drank on, on, uh, on antibuse the last seven months of my drinking from May of 1986 to January 21st, 1987. That's the day I was uh, one more time arrested. I'm in handcuffs. And the, the military police tried to bring me back to my ship. As we uh, approached the, the quarter deck of the ship, the officer deck put his arm up and said, wrong answer. Orders have already been processed on this loser. Uh, the orders are 90 days in the brig, bad conduct discharge or treatment. I remember vividly, right? I, the handcuffs were extra tight that morning. I, you know how you kind of fidget with them. And uh, when they said or treatment, I remember it piqued my interest. I kind of, hmm. <laughs> now, now it wasn't because I thought treatment was a good idea. I didn't even know enough about what treatment was to know good idea, bad idea. I'd heard of treatment. I'd heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. You can't really be out there drinking like I do uh, and you don't hear of treatment or AA. Uh, but the way you hear about it is sort of you're in the bar and, and uh, you kind of go, uh, what happened to Joe? Oh. Joe got his fourth DUI. They're sending him. To, he had to go to treatment. And he's now going to those A&A classes. <laughs> right. That's how you hear about it. But I never did follow up questions. I, I just kind of look away. I didn't say, hey, maybe I should get a hold of Joe and find out what he's really doing. That might be some benefit to me. Of course not. Right. So I never did any follow up. So I have no idea. I only know it's where people wind up going. It's, you know, <laughs> kind of you fell off the cliff, huh? Uh, and so it wasn't, my interest wasn't based on that. My interest was based on, I figured that if I somehow could get that treatment thing they're talking about, that might help me with the inevitable charges that were coming my way one more time. And so, uh, but I now know it wouldn't have mattered. I didn't know I was not part of the decision-making process because I'm in handcuffs, right? When you're in handcuffs, uh, whoever has you in handcuffs never turns to me and says, so what's your opinion on what happens next? <laughs> <laughs> when, when you're in handcuffs, you go where they say, right? right. You're not part of the decision-making process. Having handcuffs sort of disqualifies you as a valid opinion, <laughs> right? So 
I was taken up to a military treatment center up in the north end of San Diego. At that time, it was at the Miramar Naval Air Station. That's actually where the Top Gun Pilot School was. But our little section was called Top Drunk, is what they called us. <laughs> they had these four <laughs> barracks off on the side. And uh, But what was so, what so vividly etched in my mind is I remember that morning as they took me into that military treatment center that the uh, the men that uh, took me in, they were very conscious that they did not take the handcuffs off me until the door was locked behind me. And that's 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 just perfect symbolism of who I am without Alcoholics Anonymous. This the country I'm supposed to be serving and the society in which I'm supposed to be living in and contributing to was only willing to take the handcuffs off me when the doors are locked behind me. Mm. That's who I am without recovery. And I have to remember that very, very vividly. That's who I am. I am a, uh, I am a, a, a liability to society. I am somebody who costs society time, money, and patience. That's who I am. And, uh, you know, with Alcoholics Anonymous, that has completely turned completely changed. So I'm locked in this treatment center. I'm going to do 45 days. And uh, we were during the first couple of days in this military treatment center, they're doing medical checkups on us. They are trying to get our files transferred from whatever base or command we are from ship base or command. So they don't really have our files yet because nobody, at least I wasn't, this wasn't a predestined duty station. (laughs) This is sort of spur of the moment you're transferred to treatment. So the files have to come in. But in the first couple of days, they've got us in with these various counseling, this sort of counseling session. We are all sitting around and this guy, I think he was a pretty new counselor and he's trying to get us to talk and nobody's talking. We're all like name, rank and serial number looking down at the floor. I ain't talking. It's somewhere in the middle of the second day. This guy named Paco uh, raises his hand and wants to talk. And the and the this facilitator got pretty excited. Oh, finally, somebody wants to talk. Yes, Paco, what would you like to say? And Paco says, I hear that I'm supposed to be rigorously honest with you guys if I'm going to do this staying sober thing. And I, I, I want to be honest and upfront. Uh, you guys think my name's Paco. You will find out in a few days that when my file gets here that my real name is Randy. But I want to tell you up front, my name's Randy. And I'd like you to now call me Randy now that I'm sober. And this facilitator got all excited. Oh, my God. First breakthrough of any honesty of any of USOBs. And later that afternoon, Randy was paraded in front of us. And they had made a gold name tag for him that said Randy. They slapped that on his chest. And then we were all informed that whenever staff was not around, Randy's in charge. He's like the resident manager now. (laughs) Oh, no. Resident sergeant, whatever. You know, whatever term. So. Now, you know, Paco's job now is if he catches us smoking outside of a bathroom window or if we aren't making our beds properly, <laughs> he's on us. So we all hated Paco. Right? We all hated Paco. Randy. Randy now. Yeah, we, we call him Randy. And, uh, you know, for. Uh, I remember we were about ready to get out of the military treatment center. Now, I, during that 45 days, I had a phenomenal response to the. AA meetings they took us to. That's really where I, 
you know, the military treatment center is as fine as a treatment center can be. They separated my body from alcohol. They gave me excellent counseling that any human being could benefit from. But my alcoholism got treated by about four or five nights a week. We would be put in vans and we'd be taken out to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you, uh, you don't see it very much uh, anymore. Uh, but back in the 80s and 90s, you would see the military uh, and any of the cities in Norfolk, Virginia, probably in Texas, too, that you would see military people sitting in the back of meetings that were in the military treatment center. They were allowing us to come in and watch the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm so grateful that Alcoholics Anonymous allows outside agencies to refer people to open meetings and allow them to sit along the back and watch Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I didn't know at the time there's a difference between watching Alcoholics Anonymous and actually doing Alcoholics Anonymous. But just the fact that sitting in the backs of those rooms and listening to you guys tell your stories, for the very first time in my life, my defense mechanisms dropped. I had this overwhelming feeling of, oh, my God, they know. They know. And you weren't talking to me about me the way other counselors, therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, all well-meaning people. My parents had sent me to the best. Right. The military had put me in front of I, I'd been seeing a military psychiatrist for the last year and a half. They were sending me and putting me in front of chaplains. Right. And they were all well-meaning people that would want to talk to me about me. What's the matter with you, Carl? Why are you doing these things? And I got defense mechanisms up. But now I'm sitting here listening to you guys tell your stories and you're not wanting to talk to me about me. You're talking about yourselves. And I could tell that you had no motive. Right. I could tell this. You would be there doing that whether I was here watching you or not. That whether I was there or not, you would have been there telling that story. So there's no motive. And somehow that thing that Alcoholics Anonymous talks about, the one alcoholic sharing with another alcoholic can reach uh, the suffering alcoholic like no one else can happen. I identify. So that's what happened while I was in treatment. I, I identified with Alcoholics Anonymous. I intuitively, I, I knew my chance for survival will have to be there if, if I decide I want to survive this alcoholism thing. So a few days before we got out of the treatment center, I remember they put us all in this room and the biggest, meanest counselor came in. He was a Marine, right? And, he, and that day he's wearing his full dress uniform. And I got to tell you, uh, uh, a Marine in his full dress uniform is a very impressive, intimidating sight. And he came in that morning, you know, just really squared away, looking sharp. And he walked up to this podium in front of this room. And there's about 35 of us uh, that were getting out of the treatment that day uh, it, uh, in a couple of days. And he leaned on this podium and he stared at us. He kind of panned the room. And he said, you 35 have been through one of the finest treatment centers in the world for alcoholism and drug addiction. And our statistics over the years have shown us that out of you 35, only one of you. We'll stay continuously sober from this day forward. Many of you will die, go insane, uh, or maybe you'll find recovery again. But there's only one of you that will stay continuously sober from this day forward. Man, you could have heard a pin drop in that room. The only thing you could hear was me going, shit. Because I knew if only one of us was going to make it, it was not going to be me. We all knew who it was going to be. It's going to be Randy over Randy. here, right? He's now the poster boy of the treatment center, for God's sake. He's already written a term paper on acceptance, and he's quoted page 449, Dr. <laughs> Paul. And, you know, he, he's the star boy of the treatment center. 
So a couple of days later, they're letting us all out and uh, people are being taken back to their ships, bases and commands in various different ways. But there was about four or five of us that had been arrested in vehicles the night before we were thrown into this place. And we were told that our vehicles had been in an impound lot. And uh, we were to wait on the front doorsteps of the treatment center and our vehicles would be brought to us out of this impound lot. And I'm standing there with a few other guys and we're uh, kind of looking at each other. Do you feel treated? What does treated mean? Uh, well, we got done with treatment. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I, gotta, I, I need to go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what I'm thinking, right? But as I'm standing there, one of the guys I'm with points at this car that seems to be coming kind of across the parking lot and starts to head towards us. And the guy goes, is that Randy in that car? And we look and sure enough, I guess he must have gotten out early for turning in his gold name tag or something. I don't know. <laughs> he's, he's driving towards us. And one of the guys I would say, he's got a bottle. And sure enough, he's pounding down a pint. <laughs> and oh, he rolls no. by us. He rolls down the window. Ha, 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 ha. Gives us all the finger. He throws the bottle right at us. Crash. We broken glass down there. And he drives right off. Uh, I guess his name was Paco again. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, the next thing I knew is I'm at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in Pacific Beach, north end of San Diego. The 6 p.m. gong show meeting. I went straight there. Ooh, the gong show meeting. What gong did, show meeting. They literally have that... a gong up in the front. They have four people sit in front of the room. This meeting is still going on on 6 p.m. Friday nights in Pacific <laughs> Beach. And uh, they have four people sit in front of the room. And so, they have well, a gong. Right, yeah. So and, people, and, there's going to be a lot of people who don't know what the gong show is. Ex explain oh, it's an that. Old, old TV show with Chuck Barris where... If you said something really stupid, bong, right? They gong you down. <laughs> and so that's what they do at this meeting. They let anybody that wants to go up to that podium. And if you share well, uh, they're, they're all approving and <laughs> awesome. But if you get up there and you start complaining or sniveling or talking about something not, that's not Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, those four people start making noise. They start being disruptive, right? To sort of let you know, you need to wrap it up. If you are so self-obsessed, you don't notice that these four people are now making noise. <laughs> they will pull out the mallet. They will hold that mallet for about 30 seconds. And if you still don't notice it, it's bong. And, the and you got to sit down. There's no, uh, to this day, I'm 34 years sober. I've never been to that. I've never shared at that meeting. <laughs> <laughs> got to be intimidating. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. So you're at the gong show meeting. Yeah. And. And I'm sitting in the back row. Um, I'm fresh out of treatment. Just got out a couple hours ago. And I got to tell you, that is, if there was ever a turning point, right? It says we stood at the turning point. You know, and when, when the book says turning point, it literally is, which way is my life going to go? I'm one day out of treatment. I'm sitting in the back of a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know anybody. And what happens next is probably... Uh, the, the essence of what AA is supposed to be. I'm sitting in the back of that room. It's a big, bustling, crazy meeting, probably 150 people. You know, the room only fits about 130, but there's 150 people in there. And I, I got a seat in the back row and one guy that night operating on his primary purpose. I'm sure there are many other men that were operating on their primary purpose, which is to look for someone to carry the message to look out for the new guy. That's the primary reason we're at meetings. There's many secondary and tertiary meetings, uh, reasons to be at a meeting, but the primary purpose is to 
support the new person, right? Laughter, fellowship, you know, you know, hearing something clever, insightful, all secondary and tertiary reasons to be at a meeting, right? But the primary reason is to support the new person. And that's what this guy was doing. And he found me sitting in the back row. He sort of walked up towards me rather aggressively, right? And he, he rather quite aggressively said, hey, never seen you here before. What you doing? And he kind of startled me. And at that point in my life, if you startle me, I might accidentally tell you the truth. Uh, if you don't startle me and you give me a couple of seconds to think about why you're saying what you're saying and what you really said, I'll probably make up a story. But he startled me and I said, I don't know. I don't know. I just got out of a Navy treatment center uh, two hours ago. I do not know what I'm doing. And this guy's response was priceless. He looked like he had just hit the jackpot in Las Vegas. I had no idea that I had just qualified myself or established myself as the holy grail of Alcoholics Anonymous the newcomer who accidentally admits he doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, so this guy is fighting his friend. No, this guy's mine, mine, <laughs> mine, mine. <laughs> and, uh, and this guy uh, took me to about 18 meetings that weekend. And oh, the reason, wow. Yeah. But it's not because he want, or really want, uh, it wasn't my well-being he was looking out for. This guy's girlfriend had left him the night before for one of his friends in his home group. So he was wondering oh, no. what he was going to do with his weekend, homicide, suicide, get loaded or grab this newcomer. He's like all over me all weekend. We went to like 18 meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, in between each meeting, he'd throw me the passenger side of his car. He'd start driving and he'd start yelling. He wouldn't even look at the road. He had like one of those AA radar cars that just made it to the next meeting, I guess. <laughs> you ever done that where you're driving yeah. and you didn't even mean to go to the meeting, but you went to the meeting, right? You're thinking, I don't need a meeting today. Next thing you know, you're in. <laughs> that's actually a sign of recovery. When that starts happening, when you wind up at the meeting, when you're actually planned not to be at the meeting, that's a sign of recovery where you're intuitively and instinctually showing up. But anyway, uh, you know, and he'd be yelling at me, uh, you got to meet, got to go to meetings, got to read the book. Damn her. He'd almost be spitting on me as he'd say, damn her. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now I didn't know it, but I was getting a very early introduction to your typical AA relationship breakup. Is what I was <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and I, I'm so glad that that guy that night in his pain was a guy in AA who had done the work of Alcoholics Anonymous, who had taken the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And therefore, he understood that the solution to his pain was out of self, out of self, out of self. I am mm. so glad that that guy that night was not at home whining into his sponsor's answer machine. If there's any of your listeners that are 25 years old or younger, an answer machine is this box that used to sit on the kitchen <laughs> counter, right? And I'm so glad he wasn't whining into the sponsor's answer machine. Sponsor, where are you? Fix me, right? I, I'm sure in those 18 meetings, he found his sponsor, right? I didn't really grasp really what a sponsor was. I knew I was supposed to find one, uh, but I didn't really grasp that uh, the le the uh, what a sponsor really means, but I'm sure in those 18 meetings that he ran across his sponsor and got some great direction. But intuitively, he understood because he'd done the work of AA, and this is really that's the that's the whole point of the steps is for us to learn a different way of looking at life, looking for spiritual answers rather than material uh, answers. And the spiritual answer is always serve. Oh, you're in a lot of pain serve some more. Um, it's always the go-to thing uh, when you have, when you, when you, if we've had that profound uh, 
rearrangement of attitudes and ideas the way that Jung describes that is necessary for recovery, we look to serve, especially when we're in pain, especially when we're confused, especially when we feel defeated and frustrated by real world stuff. And don't get me wrong, that stuff's real. But our answers need to be spiritual. And it always centers around serve. And that's what that guy was doing that weekend. You know, he was just using me as a prop in his weekend. So he didn't do something really stupid. He just was looking out for me rather than worrying about his pain. And I got to tell you, relationship pain, I sponsor a lot of guys. And that Those relationship arguments, and those breakups, divorces, that's painful stuff, really painful stuff. And we always look for, you know, real world answers of I'm getting divorced. Get a better attorney, more expensive attorney. <laughs> Write a really scathing letter. Get my kid. When really Alcoholics Anonymous gives you that spiritual answer of get another commitment. Mm. Pick up three new guys to, to sponsor. Our feeling is, but I don't got anything. I'm, I'm dying here. It's exactly when, when we're supposed to do it. Right. And so I didn't realize that I was getting a live example of just the, the essence of Alcoholics Anonymous that, that first weekend out of treatment. But I certainly benefited from it. I uh, got back to my ship after that weekend, and the one other sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous was on my ship. His name was Bob W. He had he was 23 years old with 16 months of sobriety. I am uh, 25 years old now with, I guess, 47 days of sobriety, 45 days in the treatment center. Stayed sober over that weekend. I would add 47 days, and Bob became my first sponsor. Uh, we embarked the next two years of our lives still on that ship with the same mission out on the going from uh, northern Alaska all the way down to Central America and out to Hawaii, you know, cruising our, our, our waters on that same mission. And uh, whenever that ship would pull into a port, Bob and I would find a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. We would, you know, it's different. Now you've got those apps, right? Find a meeting anywhere. We had right. to go to a pay phone, dump quarters, use a calling card, call the number for AA, uh, get an address get a taxi driver or walk to wherever that address was. And hopefully we would find that meeting. And I got to tell you, some of the most valuable experiences I ever had in my recovery were being a nomad in Alcoholics Anonymous, new in recovery. This, my first sponsor and I looking for meetings in Mexico and Canada and Hawaii, and just the people were so kind. And then when the ship was out at sea for weeks on end, he and I would read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous back and forth to each other. And, uh, you know, my my first my sponsor uh, uh, Bob had a had a sponsor who was uh, we used to call him the old man. Uh, what's so funny is I'm that old man's age right now and length of <laughs> sobriety. He had about thirty years and he was you know late fifties, and he was really sponsoring us both, right? But Bob was my sponsor, but we always had to turn to him. What does the old man say? And he was urging us to read the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous to each other. And when I looked at that scenario when in my mind's eye I, I see that ship out in the middle of the pacific ocean i see two young men sitting in the battery shop of engine room number two at 6 30 p.m each night and a big book of alcoholics anonymous it literally is aa in its purest form uh the blind leading the blind remember he had 16 months he was no expert right he mm -hmm. barely knew the history he probably mixed up roland hazard and evie thatcher when he tried to tell me the story right who cares Right. Step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message. It does not say we successfully or expertly. It says we tried. 
and Bob tried. And we both had the experience that uh, we need to have in order to have that rearrangement at the level of our soul to find recovery. And uh, one of the most valuable, you asked me about Blair on the bridge. Do we have time still? Yeah, sure. That? It's about a five minute story. Yeah. And, and this is uh, where I learned that really valuable thing that happened to me, which is one alcoholic sharing with another can affect uh, uh, the suffering alcoholic like no one else can. Um, and that is really the bare bones of Alcoholics Anonymous. And how I learned that, I'll never forget. So I, we're about, as I said, Bob and I would always, ship would pull into a port. We would find the meeting. Sometimes if we had a couple of days of liberty, we would sh- uh, split a hotel room and we just find the meetings in town uh, from that hotel room. Uh, we would want to get off that ship because uh, if anybody's ever been in a sober house or recovery house and you've got like three or four people in a, in a room, that's luxury compared to a birthing area on a Navy ship. They put 60 <laughs> people in the size of my kitchen, right? They stack you three high and you're, you're, you're right there next to each other. That's how it is on a Navy ship. So if you got to you, you want to get off it uh, if you have the chance at Liberty. So we happen to be in Victoria, British Columbia. Um, we got a hotel room at the Strathcona Hotel. I still remember that name. And we went out to the AA meeting after uh, uh, that night. And after the meeting, uh, Bob, my first sponsor, said, hey, you know, I'm not really feeling too well. I'm going to head back to the hotel. I stayed out with the AAers from the meeting, maybe went out for coffee, went to another meeting, chased a girl. I don't know. Maybe all three. Right. Who knows? But a couple hours later, I come back to the Strathcona Hotel and I open up the hotel room and, and there's Bob with another guy from our ship named Blair. Now, on the way back to the hotel, Bob had found Blair on the street and Blair was just wasted, right? He, he's he's this, this kind of drunk of, uh, doesn't even know where he's at. He's got vomit on him, right? And Bob has him on my bed, right? <laughs> I'm thinking, <laughs> holy smoke. And, and Bob has Blair propped up against the headboard with an end table and pillows Right. And a chair. So because Blair is so drunk, he he'd fall over. So Bob has him pinned up again like that. And Bob has the big book open and reading to him, you know, and I look at this and Bob's we are more than 100 men and women who like and I look at this and I go, this is silly. Blair doesn't even know where he's at. What are you doing, Bob? But anyway, I, I threw in my 10 cents worth and and uh, we carried Blair back to the ship on kind of on our shoulders, you know, uh, Navy guys carrying him back. You always look out for your shipmate. We got Blair back to the ship and into his rack. So he's safe. And, and uh, I, I was thinking that was a waste of time. But I didn't understand that you do this for your own sobriety, not whether they get sober or not. Right. That really hadn't sunk in uh, completely. Uh, that's the last we heard of Blair. Blair must have tried to avoid us after that. Uh, and apparently he's now drinking again. He's trying not to drink. He's drinking six months. Uh, no, it's probably three or four months later. We're back in port down in San Diego and uh, I'm in my rack. It's, uh, you know, three in the morning. And all of a sudden on the side of my rack, Carl, Carl, wake up, wake up. And I'm like, what, what, what? And I pull the curtain back and there's Bob and Bob goes, Blair's on the Coronado bridge. We got to go get him. If you're unfamiliar with San Diego, uh, the Coronado Bridge is this bridge that connects the Coronado Island with downtown San Diego. And it's a very popular suicide spot, such a popular suicide spot that uh, 
they actually had suicide hotline phones about every hundred yards as you go across, just in case when you're up there thinking of committing suicide, you change your mind, you get on the suicide hotline phone. And that's apparently what Blair had done. He'd gotten onto the suicide hotline phone at the top of the Coronado Bridge, and he was talking to the suicide hotline counselors on the other end. And uh, this is uh, how it was presented to me how this happened. Blair was telling the suicide hotline counselor, I will only talk to Bob W. The suicide hotline counselor is going, who's Bob W? (laughs) (laughs) Who's Bob W? And Blair says, it's anonymous. (laughs) So she doesn't know what to do. And she goes and get, she goes and gets her, her boss, right? Another well-meaning, highly qualified suicide hotline counselor. And they start playing good cop, bad cop with Blair, right? They start throwing questions at him. And there, and in doing that, they find out he's from the Navy and what ship he's from. So they take a stab in the dark. It's like a needle in a haystack. They just call down to the quarter deck of our ship and they say, is there any chance that there is a Bob W on that ship? And the guy who answers the phone on the quarter deck that, that morning. Now, my first sponsor, Bob, he would guard your anonymity at the level of that ship, but he never guarded his own. So he could be of service at any time. So the guy who answers the phone goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mr. 12 Steps. We know all about him. So they go down and get Bob. Bob comes. Carl, Carl, come on. Gets me. (laughs) So I I hop out of my rack, throw on clothes. We get into Bob's car. We start driving down to the Coronado Bridge. And as we're driving down there, Bob looks at me and goes, Carl, get the big book out of the glove box. Bone up on on working with others. I get a flashlight. Says, see your man alone if possible, Bob. He says, forget it. We're going to wing it tonight. <laughs> and we get down to the base of the Coronado Bridge and the, the fire department, the police departments there, the on-duty psychologists, they have this staging area at the bottom that they do for suicide situations. And uh, Bob and I walk up on this group of uh, professionals, the fire department, police department, the psych- on-duty psychologists. And we walk up on them and the fireman who seems to be in charge turns to us as we're walking up and he goes, is one of you Bob W? And Bob goes, yeah, yeah, that's me. And he goes, I don't know what you're going to do. We've been talking to him for an hour and a half and he's not budging, but here, go ahead, talk to him. And they hand this little speakerphone contraption to Bob and Bob says into there, Blair. And you can hear on the other end, Bob, is that you? And Bob says, yes, Blair, it's me. And I'll get the hell down from that bridge. And you hear, Okay. <laughs> Blair walks, <laughs> walks down. <laughs> Police and fire. What the hell? <laughs> one alcoholic can affect another alcoholic like no one else can. We cannot forget that. We right. have a responsibility to be here for the next person because nobody can help us but us. Did Blair end up okay in the end? Do do you know? Okay, here we go. So Blair stayed in the Navy when I got out. uh, And even after Bob got out. And Facebook reconnected me with with Blair about 10 years ago. So Blair does not have that same sobriety date. He put together about 20 years. And then he lost his sobriety. I'm not going to talk to everything too as to how that happened. He actually had to go do some prison time. 
and he got out of prison about 10 or 12 years ago, and he now has another 12 or 15 years of sobriety, and he is the prison liaison up in Wisconsin, so for when other men get out of prison, he finds them jobs on dairy farms. That's wow. what he's doing. And he's wow. also a wildlife photographer. Wow. Right? So, so he doesn't have the same sobriety date, but he, he, yeah. he's one of those guys that in the statistics of Alcoholics Anonymous, of those that continue on, they have miraculous lives, even though they might not have the same sobriety date or they might have you know, lost their sobriety date multiple times. They still have a way better life with alcohol than, than if Alcoholics Anonymous was not here. Right. Value in life is not always that you have the same sobriety date, but if we keep trying, right, we have such immensely better lives uh, than if there was no such thing as Alcoholics Anonymous. And Blair's yeah. a perfect example of that. Yeah. This has been great, Carl. I really yeah. appreciate you coming on. Oh, uh, I'm going to go ahead and read um, uh, from page 164 of the big book here and wrap us up. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us, like me and Mr. Carl, as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Once again, Mr. Carl, thank you so much for coming on today. I appreciate that. John, it's been a real pleasure. Had a great time. Hope to talk again. God bless you. God bless you. Once again, thank you so, so much, Mr. Carl M., for coming in here and sharing your story, not only with me, but all of the listeners of Sober Speak in all four corners of the world. It is much appreciated. Now, remember, everybody listening in, we don't want you sharing your gossip in the group or anywhere else for that matter. But if that episode had a positive impact on you, please pause your device and share it with a friend or family member. It may be just what they need today. Now, on to a little bit of a listener feedback. David A. writes in, and David A. actually wrote in last week, and I read his response on air, and he said, so he's uh, he's commenting on what he read to me last week, but the, the subject line is, send firefighters my way. And he says, good day, John. I just listened to the episode where you read my comments. Thank you for reading my letter, and please do send any firefighter my way that reaches out, or anyone else for that matter. Do take care. God bless David A. So if you are a firefighter out there, or anyone else, I guess uh, according to the note that I have gotten, but specifically firefighters, if you would like me to get you in contact with Mr. David A., Feel free to send an email to me to John, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com, and we will get you in touch with Mr. David. I will broker that deal. I don't want to put his uh, uh, email out on the air here. But nonetheless, uh, thank you so much for uh, writing in, David, and for offering up your service to others. Much appreciated. Kevin writes in, and he says, Hey, John M., thank you for making SoberSpeak available to me and the other alcoholics. I've only just started listening then again with the kitchen table meeting and it was very good. 
In particular, the part about the first hundred alcoholics in history of the recovery of the first uh, hundred uh, alcoholics. My stories, not a lot different than other people's. My head at the time still tells me that I'm not an alcoholic, but my history and identification with other members tells me quite clearly that I am an alcoholic. As I become more sober, I realize how insane I was while drinking and also in recovery. Take care, kindest regard, kindest regards, Kevin. Thanks, Kevin, for writing in. I appreciate you. And I'm glad we could put something out there that you enjoy and uh, keep coming and listening and identifying. And I'm sure it will come with time. God bless you. Julie T writes in and she says, hi, John, I live in Ooh, Kamloops, British Columbia, Canada, Kamloops. Wow, I'd like to live in a town called Kamloops, K-A-M-L-O-O-P-S. Nonetheless, she says, I got sober in Estes Park, Colorado. Well, I'm very familiar with that. June 14th of 1996. I have been in Canada since 2002. I walk to and from work every day about seven kilometers. Wow. That is quite a little uh, jaunt there, Miss uh, Julie T. She says, I was looking for an AA speaker to listen to on my walk and I came across Sober Speak. I'm really enjoying it. I've listened to Gary K, Matt M, Bill C, and JS, and I really enjoy Enjoy them all. I find myself saying yes in big capital letters a lot. And I also find myself saying thank you as they remind me of what I need to be doing or not doing. I hear that. I get that every day when I, it, both listening to speakers, uh, listening to podcasts, going to meetings. It's amazing how. Uh, you would think that it would last more than 24 hours with me, but I have to be reminded all the time. So I completely get what you're saying, Julie T. She says, I usually attend a noon meeting every day and often share about something that I have heard on the podcast. Thank you for your service. This has been a great opportunity to hear experience, strength, and hope from folks I might never hear otherwise. I-L-A-S, Julie T. And I think I-L-A-S means in love and service. I hope I got that right. But thank you very much, Julie T, for writing in. And tell all the other Canadians, A, we said hello. Barb writes in, and she actually uh, DM'd me on the Instagram. She says, hi, John. As I sit here with kidney failure, contemplating my life, I think about the freedom I recently found in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I came in through Al-Anon because I wasn't ready to be fully and brutally honest with myself. To think about the wreckage of my past is one thing, but to ponder on the beauty that has arisen from my dark, saddened soul is something, quite frankly, I call a miracle. You're a good writer, Barb. Anyway, she says, my, my HP, who I call God, brought me into his loving arms in 1991. 
I was ill and passed away for 28 minutes in ICU. I had a near-death experience, but because of my disease of addiction slash alcoholism, I thought I wasn't good enough for heaven. Can you imagine that? You know, I've always been... Um, envious of people who have, I've, I've just always been into near-death experiences. And here's the deal. I would love to have a near-death experience. I just don't want to die to have it. And so I'm afraid I wouldn't come back. But that is absolutely really cool you had that. Anyway, she says, just another person in my mind who abandoned me. God didn't think I was good enough. So therefore, I must be worth nothing. Well, after working the steps in AA, I had a profound spiritual experience, another white light experience, but also something more like a whisper every day telling me I'm wanted, understood, and loved beyond, beyond any action I could ever take. I have almost three years of recovery in combination after my near-death experience. Uh, I did go back out and drink, and I can't tell you how much damage I've done to my body and my soul, but healing begins with acceptance, and now I see the world in a whole new light. I don't know what my future holds, but I hope to be able to share my experience, strength, and hope on your podcast someday. Well, you never know, Miss Barb. She says, the strength of the human experience is stronger together. I love all you do, please tell the beautiful Mrs. M hi from me. Well, I will, Barb. Thank you for all you do, and God bless you. Wow, what an inspiration, Barb. Uh, sounds like you have had quite a journey, uh, and I'm glad you were back on the path. I appreciate you writing in or DMing me because I'm so cool because I get Instagrams, and I know how to read them. And I don't even know how to respond to them. Sometimes I actually send a voice message. I've done that periodically. When I say periodically, like once in a blue moon, but uh, I'll send a little uh, uh, voice message back to somebody. But anyway, I digress. Lacey writes in and Lacey says, hi, John, I am 51 years old. I live in Satellite Beach, Florida. My sobriety date is April 13th, 2018. I have, oh, by the way, she sent me a video actually also. This is the first time I've ever, she was, uh, anyway, it was like a video to kind of introduce herself just to say hello and such like that. And it was, it was really nice. And I, I think that was the first time somebody sent me a video and I'm not encouraging people to do that. That's not what I'm saying out there, but I'm just, uh, it was really kind of cool to get a, uh, a video from her and just kind of, you know, put her name with a face or whatever. Nonetheless, then she says, I have a home group. I have a sponsor. I got sponsees. I go to our local circles of care rehab. And if you're listening out there and you're at the Circles of Care Rehab, tell uh, Miss Lacey I said hello. Nonetheless, she says, I have always played a role in our group and club, being the current intergroup rep. I stay in the middle of the herd. Well, that's interesting because this uh, particular podcast, this episode is called middle of the circle, right? So in middle of the herd is, is as you know, um, about the same thing. Nonetheless, she says, as many, as many speakers say, I like to keep as many steps between you and the drink as 
impossible. Oh, I so much understand that. I had tried AA sort of a few times before, you know, showing up once in a while to a meeting one minute before it started and leaving immediately after. One time I even went to a church and someone prayed for me and the obsession lifted for a few months, but I did nothing with that gift. I didn't build my skill set, so the minute the desire came back a few months later, I started again and was probably drinking for another four years. The last three years of drinking, I drank myself, uh, I drank by myself in my backyard being a, quote, responsible parent, not going out, etc. I, uh, I every time told myself I would stop tomorrow, but that never happened. I could not, for the life of me, figure out why it was so impossible to quit something that I hated. Ooh, that's a common sentiment in AA, isn't it? She says, but it was providing a solution at the same time. The fun was out of it, though, but the instant the alcohol hit the veins, I, it was the moment of relief of self. The first few months were, well, you know, uh, bliss, I guess. Normies don't feel what we feel. I am convinced of that. As Joe and Charlie say, by the way, if you don't know who Joe and Charlie is, I would go ahead and Google that and listen to them. They're absolutely fantastic. But she says, as Joe and Charlie say, mental obsession and physical addiction. Finally, though... The willingness, uh, finally, though, with the willingness, it, my daughter had finally seen me drunk. I walked down to school to walk her home and I tripped on something. She questioned me about it and she was 11 ish around this time and I made her feel bad for questioning me. As a side note, I always, I've always been that parent that told her she should question authority. But when she questioned me all of a sudden, I was like, I was looking from the outside in and it was like she was dealing with an alcoholic and she was, it was a weird feeling. And for some reason that did it. There were the things in the past that had happened that were much bigger than that, like losing a job. But for some reason, that was the moment that brought me willingness. I went that very next day to a meeting, scared to death, even though I was hung over and I haven't stopped. Uh, oh, scared to death, even though I was hung over and I haven't stopped since. I never before decided to come back when I was hung over because it was always easy to say you would stop when you feel like crap. But I couldn't wait this time. I didn't want to wait to talk myself out of going. I needed something that was different than what I was doing while I had the courage. I never guessed I would ever, I ever wanted what I have, excuse me, I never guessed I would have ever wanted what I have today in the friends, the belief I now have in a higher power, the steps to walk me through every little thing in my life. Quite quite amazing as as you know you are appreciated thank you so much lacy well lacy thank you for the wonderful feedback god bless you um 
And uh, I'm so glad that you wrote into us. That it sounds like an amazing story you have as well. God, all you guys are absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. I just, you know, I think about you once again. I pray for you throughout the week. And um, I, I, just, I just love you to death. All right, everybody. That brings us to Uno Mas episode ending. We have brought this one to a conclusion. So keep coming back. It works if you work it. Hopefully I will be back next week. I have some travel kind of scheduled and, uh, but you know, it seems like I always manage somehow, 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 some way to get something out. Anyway, God bless you all. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Thanks for being here. Adios. Let go, go, go.